Hey folks, welcome to the Aspire Natural Health Podcast. My name is Dr. Tim Gersmar. At Aspire Natural Health, we are experts at treating digestive issues, autoimmune disease, and other hard to treat cases. Our goal with this podcast is to bring you interesting and informative discussions and topics, whether that's with us or other experts and interesting people. Listen, we want to reach as many people as possible and help as many lives as we can. This podcast is and always will remain free of charge. So we'll bring you the expertise, but we do need your help. There are two simple things that you can do to help us in our efforts to reach as many people as possible. Whether this is your first podcast or one of many, if you found these podcasts helpful, please do two things. The first is share it with any friends or people you know who might find it valuable. Again, it's free. Please drop them a line and let them know about the podcast. The second thing, which is really important, is to please head on over to iTunes and give us preferably a five-star review. Whatever you think we're worth, we're striving here to produce a five-star podcast. And it would really help if you would take a minute to drop us a five-star review. That way, iTunes ranks us highly. Other people can see and hear about us, and we can succeed in spreading the message of how to be informed about your health and how to get some help. So please share this podcast with a friend, head on over to iTunes, and leave us a five-star review. All right? Without further ado, let's get on with the show. Hey folks, it's Dr. Ersmar with Aspire Natural Health. I am here today with Dr. Tommy Wood at Third Place Books here in uh, near Kenmore, Washington, uh, where I went to school. And I was telling Tommy that years ago now, I used to come here with my fellow students from Bastyr and we'd study anatomy. So we'd sit down with, uh, you know, the big textbooks and we'd be cramming in every branch of every nerve, every blood vessel, all the different names of all the tendons and muscles and all the pieces of the body and mainly complaining about our cruel, cruel anatomy teacher making us learn all those, or we'd be studying all the biochemistry pathways and how this goes to that goes to that. And at the time when we were learning that, a lot of us were questioning like, why? Why do I need to know this information, right? What does it matter if there are 16 branches of this one nerve? Like, does it affect what I do? Why do I learn this? And you know, and our teachers and the veteran doctors were telling us, listen, you need to know this information, right? Not because, and, and, I, and I've come to a place where I would argue the exact same thing. Do I need to know all 16 branches of those nerves like on a regular basis? Like, no, not at all. And frankly, a lot of that information is receded to the back of my brain, uh, possibly never to be retrieved again, right? But the bottom line is, just like in anything, you need to achieve proficiency sort of before you can go away from it. So what I see out there, and Tommy and I can talk a little bit today, there are a lot of practitioners who are really light on the basics. They don't know their biochemistry very well. They don't know their anatomy very well. They don't know their physiology very well. They don't know how drugs and supplements and herbs actually work to the best of our knowledge. Um, and so they end up with a very shallow knowledge of how these things work and that really limits their ability to do good work to actually put a lot of critical thinking so you know they may learn for irritable bowel syndrome you use x y and z we see this a lot in sort of the functional medicine sphere where practitioners are sort of venturing out from conventional medicine they may be attending some workshops they're sort of learning some new protocols and they're very excited and they get into practice and they someone 
someone comes in like with irritable bowel syndrome and they say, awesome, I just learned a new protocol. You take X, Y, and Z at these doses because this is the protocol that I learned. And if that works, honestly, fantastic. My world, the type of patients that I deal with, many of them have tried those protocols and either got some results, but not what they were looking for, or it didn't work for them, or it even in fact made them worse. And what we find with practitioners who don't have that depth of knowledge is they don't have sort of the base to draw from to analyze it and figure out why didn't this protocol work or what's going on for this person. And so it's just to say that if you're a health practitioner out there and you're looking and saying like, really, is it worth investing my time and learning a lot of these foundational things? The answer is yes. Are you going to need to know those 16 nerve branches or, you know, whatever it is, or the exact biochemical cycles in your day-to-day practice? Probably not. But is having that foundation that then you can use to go forward for critical analysis and understanding and troubleshooting and helping people that those basic protocols don't work for, is that helpful? Yes. If you're out there looking for a practitioner, is it important uh, that you ask them about what their education is and that you can see that they have that education and they can do that work? And one last piece here. I know Tommy's waiting very patiently for me to finish my rant, but the analogy that we always use is between cooks and chefs. So a cook is someone in my world who can follow a recipe. They're told you cut these things up, you mix these things, you put them in the oven at this temperature, you do this, and then you should, at the end of it, get this result. But if you don't, or you need to deviate from that recipe, are you able to do that? And your average cook is not because they don't understand how all the ingredients marry together and what the purpose of X, Y, and Z in the protocol and why you're cooking and doing and chopping and doing these different things. They just have a recipe to follow. A chef, in contrast, knows each of those components and how to put them together and how to use different techniques and temperatures and different tools. And if that recipe doesn't work or they want to change it, they know how to do that. So when it comes to health practice, practitioners, I think it's critically important. Cooks have their place and they're very useful. And if you've gotten help from quote unquote a cook, great. But if you really need a chef, it's to step up and find someone with that expertise. And now, so let me introduce Dr. Tommy Wood. So as some of you may have heard, I've been on Chris Kelly's podcast a couple times. He and I met at this year's most recent Ancestral Health Symposium, and he has talked up and down and waxed poetic about Tommy here and that I have to meet him. And I was lucky enough that a few months ago, Tommy moved to Seattle and he and I could get a chance to sit down. So let me say hello and thanks for joining me today, Tommy. Hello. It's a huge pleasure uh, first to meet you and then to uh, have a conversation. Absolutely. So you have an interesting kind of backstory. You've come from very conventional medicine to sort of a very unconventional place. So share your story a little bit with us. Yeah, of course. So I'm probably the exact opposite of the kind of person you were talking about because I've spent most of my life in education, actually. So after leaving school, I went to the University of Cambridge. I did an undergraduate degree in biochemistry. Mm -hmm. Uh, But because of the way the system works there, there was also a lot of physiology, uh, basic chemistry, 
I did pharmacology and all that kind of stuff. And Mm -hmm. then couldn't really figure out what I wanted to do next. And one of my friends said, oh, I'm going to apply to medical school. So I was like, oh, yeah, that sounds interesting. And I'd had sort of my own kind of not a big health journey, but just sort of, you know, losing some weight and getting interested in being healthy and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So I kind of wanted to, to maybe help other people with that. And that's why, you know, when, whenever you go to your medical school interviews, they always say, oh, why do you want to be a doctor? And you say, oh, because right. I want to help people. Right, and right. That was, that, was, that was exactly me at, at the time. And, and then sort of you go through, went through medical school and this is kind of being hit over the head continuously with biochemistry and anatomy and all yeah. that stuff that you were yeah. talking about, and yeah. which is hugely interesting. But when you go... Then so I, I worked in London in a hospital as, as a doctor for a couple of years and I did internal medicine, different kinds of surgery, emergency medicine, just because the, the training in the UK after you graduate medical school is a lot more general for a few years before you specialize. So Interesting. You, you okay. do a lot of different rotations. And, uh-huh. and, you, and then that's the first point really realized that what they teach you in medical school isn't what you need to survive the hospital environment. Right, right. right. But again you know the basics whenever you're really stumped by a problem then you can always go back to basics and fall back on that knowledge right but then after working for a couple of years i actually uh, got an invitation to go to oslo to do a phd so i just finished my phd in physiology and neuroscience at the university of oslo and i actually defend my thesis uh, next week so i will stand oh. up in stand <laughs> up in front of my family and friends and the whole department and i'll be grilled by international experts on the work that i did nice uh, well, so not that, not nice. I mean, well, it's good to get it over with, yeah, right? But, over with, you know, exactly. yeah, yeah. And I guess throughout that whole process, I kind of I realized that what traditional medicine was doing, you know, was hugely important at, at certain times. So when you're working, I worked in orthopedics, you know, fixing broken bones, yep. working the ER, yep. you know, getting people fixed so they can go home, heart attacks, yep, even cardiac arrest traumatic brain injury, all that stuff, you know, hugely, hugely important. Yes. But throughout my time in medical school, I actually started to do some work on multiple sclerosis, particularly because Mm. my stepbrother has multiple sclerosis. Mm. Mm. And my stepfather is a chemical engineer. And what chemical engineers are really good at is solving problems. Yes. That's basically what they do. Right. So what we did is we read... I think a thousand papers, maybe probably more actually by now. And, and we built these huge, like basically chemical engineering diagrams of all the things that can possibly happen to lead to multiple sclerosis. Mm, mm. And what it essentially looks ended up looking like is sort of a, a functional medicine kind of picture. Cause you know, we talked about methylation pathways and, and heavy metal toxicity and maybe some kind of chronic infections or anything like mm-hmm, that. And all this mm-hmm. stuff that people are talking about in terms of becoming healthy. And at the time I didn't realize that cause I was still in education. This is something we were doing completely separately. Right. And then it's quite nice to see that from first principles, you come up with the same answer, right? right. Which is really encouraging. Right. And then. So during my PhD time, I had some more, you know, I had the time and space to read more on PubMed and I was more interested in spending some digging into this kind of helping people in terms of getting this knowledge. So I started a blog and my own podcast. And what I really was to start with is this person who has a lot of knowledge, but hasn't really applied it in the real world. So I've, you know, I'd done the, the hospital medicine stuff, but applying this kind of these functional medicine ideas to people and helping them wasn't something that I'd really done. And, and that's where I was very lucky to meet Chris. Mm-hmm. And basically the story that he tells 
is he was on the Rob, and this is initially how I went, he was on the Rob Wolf podcast, mm -hmm. and he talked about the stuff that he was doing, and I was listening, and I was like, oh, this is great. There's this British guy, he's in the US, he's doing the stuff that you know I'm really interested in doing. Uh -huh. He's doing free consultations, so I booked a free consultation with him. And, nice. I, yeah. uh, and I called him up, and, I don't, and he didn't know what I wanted to talk about, and I was like, yeah, so how do you do what you do, Yeah. right? And yeah. He kind of gave, he kind of fobbed me off a little bit and said, "Oh, I did the Kalis training course, you know, maybe go and do that and, yeah. and all this stuff." And yeah. then, and then basically, I bombarded him with emails full of research <laughs> papers for like a year. Uh -huh. I think it was like, "Oh, I was reading this really interesting thing, and maybe like these pathways and all this stuff." And this yeah. is really, yeah. And then I think eventually he kind of realized that we could join up. And what then happened? What as I became so I'm the chief medical officer of Nourish Balance Thrive now, and mm -hmm. the way he describes it is that. I've become the architect and he's the builder, right? So right. I do some client calls and, and patient facing stuff. And mm -hmm. usually when people are really interested in, in digging into the nitty gritty stuff, because that's where I spend a lot of my time. Yeah. But most people don't need that. So I spend a lot of time helping to build the protocols, the important stuff that we can then apply to people. And then yeah. he and the other practitioners then apply that to the actual clients that come through the door. So like, different expertises came together and actually what he's helped me do is learn how to apply that stuff because you can right. have all this knowledge right but i think there's a lot of people out there so the opposite of the practitioners who don't know what they're doing is the people who've read all this stuff and are putting out all this information but they actually they have never helped anybody fix a chronic health problem right so there's definitely a balance of the two and so chris has helped me not be that person and actually try and try and apply that stuff in the real world right I know it's it's a tricky thing because certainly you know there's a lot of bloggers out there and there's a lot of pieces and people you know PubMed warriors and stuff mm -hmm. so just for anybody out there who may not know what that word PubMed is basically a giant US database where many but not all scientific papers get indexed and put onto PubMed so they have think of it almost as kind of Google for for you know scientific studies you can go to their website and you can look up different search terms and it'll spit out papers for you and everything and give you you know a starting place to look at things right yeah, so. yeah absolutely and it's there's kind of a trick to it and what what helps and what again a lot of people don't have is a traditional scientific background so right. i've done basic research in the lab with cells and animals and some stuff with humans and yeah what when you write this stuff up for a paper which is what then goes on pubmed yeah you have to write an abstract which is basically 250 words to summarize what you did right and you normally write it in a very sexy way to make it sound really important so that so then when the editor is first reading it of the journal, they're like, oh, right. yeah, this is a paper that maybe we want to publish. Right, right, right. And, and so what a lot of PubMed warriors, as you call them, would yeah. do is they'll read the abstract and then they'll, this is fact. Right. right? And then right. actually, if you go digging into some of the details and you understand how the experiments are performed and all this stuff, you start to realize that maybe that wasn't really the case. Right. But... You know, as a starting point, it's brilliant because it can sort of get you into access to that real research, but you also kind of need to understand how that world works to kind of get the most out of it. Right, right. And so, you know, this can feel very overwhelming for people. Certainly, you know, again, it comes down to the basic fact of having a good healthcare team on your side. Because listen, you know, most people don't want to make this their full-time job. They don't want to learn how to read science or they don't have the time to learn how to read scientific papers and dig into them. And that's why we need Tommy, from what I'm hearing today, sounds like 
what we need, which is someone who does synthesis. Because we have specialists, right? And, and science is increasingly sort of fragmented into specialists, which are necessary as you keep exploring deeper and deeper levels of things, which is great. But we find that people get siloed or kind of stuck in their little area without sort of the ability to really relate their findings to the greater body of knowledge. And we really need people who can understand the work that those people are doing. And yet, kind of what you were saying, where you were building sort of a model of different factors that could influence multiple sclerosis, we need people to go down in and look at these kind of deeper levels, but then bring them up and synthesize them together into models that work. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if you look at people who come from the traditional medical and scientific areas, they are exactly not trained to do that because right. you need to be really attentive to detail. It takes a huge amount of work just to learn one thing about one pathway. And so actually, you almost don't want those people to be then the people that synthesize. You need somebody else to come in and I think there's actually a really good, I am myself, I'm not an engineer, but my fiance is an engineer. I have a family full of engineers. Mm -hmm. And that's what they're actually really good at. And people might have heard of, have you heard of Ivor Cummins? Yes. So mm -hmm. uh, he goes by the moniker of the fat emperor, but he's basically a chemical engineer who's done the same thing with heart disease and mm. the causes of heart disease mm -hmm. and sort of digging into that. So you kind of, there's this special, there's like a special training and approach that it takes to sort of synthesize all this information. And I think maybe hopefully people will realize you'll get to a point where you need the people to do the really detail-oriented science and then you also need people to then synthesize that together because those skill sets aren't necessarily the same. Right. We were talking before we started recording that in essence there's also a third piece you need which is your popularizers yeah. which are people who can then take that information and push it out and get it in front of a lot of people. And we were venting a little bit <laughs> that it's not just the internet, but the internet has let some people who are very good popularizers, who know how to push out information in front of a lot of people, who know how to monetize things mm -hmm. and sell things. And again, there's nothing per se wrong with, with monetizing and selling things, right? But all right, folks had a battery, uh, batteries ran out there. So we've got a new set in and let's pick up. So there's a lot of people out there who are good at popularizing who don't necessarily have the best information, mm -hmm. right? They have maybe good sellable information, but they don't necessarily have good information. So really, we almost need three classes of people, if you will, the specialists who dig down and uncover issues, right? The synthesizers who then reach out to a broad base of, of all these specialists and bring it together into a coherent system. And then the popularizers who are able to get that information out in front of people and make it actionable for them. Right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think maybe the only place where that becomes tricky is people not being honest about where they are on that scale. Right? right. So if you're somebody who is a popularizer, which is very important, maybe you need to be more honest about the fact that actually you don't understand the nitty gritty details that much. So right. if people want to know that they need to go see somebody else right. rather than try and sort of that person model their way through. So they sound like they know what they're talking about. Right, absolutely. So what brings you to Seattle? A girl brought me to Seattle, <laughs> which is probably why any man goes anywhere. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Um, but during the end of my first year of my PhD, went to a conference mm -hmm. in Maryland and met a girl who is now my fiance mm -hmm. got engaged just before Christmas. And Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. And so basically for remaining two years of my PhD, we had an entirely long distance relationship. Mm. So mm. the plane 
plane trips every month or so, lots of time on Skype and FaceTime and those mm -hmm. things. Mm -hmm. And then when I sort of got to the end of submitting my thesis in the summer, you know, we'd planned for basically a year to move to Seattle. She just moved over from Johns Hopkins, so she's now a, an assistant professor of chemical engineering here at the University of Washington. Mm -hmm. And then there's a woman in the field that I did my PhD, mm -hmm. uh, it's neonatal neuroprotection, so basically looking at ways to treat brain injury in babies. Mm. She's also at the University of Washington, and, and I'd met her a couple of times at conferences and things, and she collaborates with Elizabeth, my fiance, and uh -huh. offered to give me a job hey. when I turned up, which is great. <laughs> So I'm working now as a, I think I'm technically a visiting scientist because I can't be a postdoc until I've actually gotten my PhD. Right. So, but I'm sort of working in a similar area. And then over the summer, hopefully the next few months, I'll transition away from that and then go and be working for Nourish Balance Thrive full time as we try and expand and work with more people. Nice, nice. Planning to stay, think you'll stay in the Seattle area? Yeah, I think so. At least for a few years. So Elizabeth will stay at, at the University of Washington at least till she gets tenure, but sure. she really likes the department. We really like the city. Yeah. Planning on buying a house, all that stuff. Nice. So oh, I think we'll okay. be here for good, the good. Well, future. Well, good, good. And just so you know, I don't know, I'm sure you probably do know this, but um, your work on multiple sclerosis is very relevant because Seattle has one of the highest incidents of multiple sclerosis. Oh, uh, um, I didn't know that specifically, but yeah. I, having seen like the epidemiology on, on the map of the US, that would make perfect sense. Right, absolutely. right, right. So um, certainly there's a lot of people here who need help and a good, solid functional medicine approach that tackles a lot of factors. So you guys have recently done some training on Alzheimer's disease yeah. and other kind of neurologic or brain-based mm -hmm. dysfunction. And we were having some interesting conversations about that. So you want to delve a little bit into that? Yeah. So this is something that we're expanding into just because there's A, the approaches are very interesting, but B, because there's just a huge need for it. And this is the work of Dr. Dale Bredesen, who some people may have heard of. He is based in California. I think he's partly associated with uh, UCLA, but then does most of his work at a place called the Buck Institute in Marin County. And I believe he's the first person who published case reports showing actual reversal of cognitive decline. So people who are having some memory issues. So from, so cognitive decline, as you call it, has multiple stages. Sure. So it starts with subjective cognitive decline, which is like, there's just not somebody says there's just not something right right like you could do all the tests and things but you can't find anything wrong but they know something isn't right right and then it goes on to moderate cognitive decline and then it will go on towards uh, over alzheimer's disease right, right right and so people various stages along that continuum by identifying certain factors and they could be sleep they could be stress could be heavy metal exposure mm -hmm. um, they, there's, he's got a subset of Alzheimer's disease now that he calls toxic, which is associated with things like mold toxicity. And then by identifying those and treating them, he's then not only been able to show that people's memory improved, but people who had to leave work because they couldn't function properly are going back to work, mm -hmm. doing MRI scans. So you do a scan of the brain, you look at the size of certain parts of the brain that tend to shrink as you get older or get cognitive problems. They've actually been growing back. Mm -hmm. So you can actually see that on the images. So he's definitely the first person that's been documenting this and he's now training practitioners to then go out and help people because the prediction is there's going to be tens of millions of people in the US with Alzheimer's disease right. and one guy certainly can't treat all right. those people, right? right. So Absolutely. he's getting this stuff out there and it's still kind of evolving and he's just recently brought in the different subtypes 
of Alzheimer's disease so people can do some slightly different tests or some slightly different treatments depending on the individual factors in an individual person, right. which is really important. Right. But they're kind of just now figuring out how to roll out the tests, how to you know get the right supplements for people. They've partnered with a, a company based in the UK that was doing some targeted supplements based on their protocol. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. It's, it's really in its infancy, but there's a huge demand for this. And it's really exciting to kind of see that grow. And I think there'll be a number of practitioners who will actually really be able to help people reverse brain aging particularly um, and keep that quality of life going for much longer. Right. Yeah, we're looking at a a huge problem in the making basically Mm -hmm. with dementia broadly speaking, you know, and Alzheimer's or being a huge component of that. So, um, and the conventional approaches are just lousy, honestly. (laughs) Yeah. So I did some time. So I did a lot of internal medicine when I was working in the hospital, but also did a few months on what we call the elderly care ward. So I think people had to be over 65 and, and need some rehabilitation and things. Mm-hmm. So they'd usually come in with something else, spend some time on, a, on an internal medicine ward and then come to us kind of for the longer term stay. Right. And we used to have something called a dementia screen, mm-hmm. which is basically four or five blood tests, B12, folate, vitamin D, maybe some iron studies. Mm-hmm. Um, and then somebody gets a CT scan, a CAT scan or an MRI, depending on whether we could convince the radiologist to spend the money because sure. it's, it's different in the UK. Yep. Uh, yep. It's not based on insurance. The government pays for it. So right. you really have to bend somebody's arm to get a, a picture of somebody's head, well, which I'll is say, the opposite here, maybe. Well, partly. On the one hand, we there are tons of those tests done. On the other hand, a lot of times getting, you know, they, like, um, for example, I had a patient in the last couple of months and they were showing signs which could have been multiple sclerosis and I was pushing to get an MRI done to just say listen we're still going to do some of the basic stuff no matter if this is MS or not MS issues need to be corrected basically but if it is MS then it sort of shifts what we do and lends some more urgency to certain parts of what we do and it was a bit of a knockdown drag out fight to get the MRI authorized because even though we do tons of them sometimes it seems when you really (laughs) want or need them you can't get it done but yeah. when you don't really want or need it, it you know, it they're done all them. over the place. So yeah. we finally did. And, and the good news for this patient was um, everything looked clear and we're not looking at, at right. MS in this case. So that that's great news. But yeah, so go on. So some blood tests, scan. Yeah, so basically saying that a few blood tests and, and a scan, that, and that's basically all that's done. So if you notice, uh, particularly you know, B12 and folate, vitamin D, we know they're associated with uh, memory issues, cognitive decline. So you know, if we found a deficiency there, we'd fix that. Yeah. And that's about it. We'd do yeah. some, some baseline cognitive testing that you hope would improve. And then right. that's like you set the baseline. And then from there, that person is only expected to get worse. Right. Right. And, right. That, and that's and within the constraints of a normal healthcare system, maybe you can't expect much more than that. Right. Hopefully that will change over time. But, you know, that was essentially what was done. And I think in reality, what you can do and what hopefully people will start doing is much greater and also much more tailored to the patient. Right. Well, we don't want this show to devolve all into insurance, but I, I've heard some arguments. But so the unfortunate reality in the U.S. is, you know, obviously we have, for the most part, all this private based insurance and the, the statistics show that because of all these price hikes that people are constantly in businesses and everything are constantly reevaluating policies and constantly switching to cheaper policies to try and contain costs. And it's all under 
understandable. The upshot of that, though, is that the average person isn't on a private insurance policy for very long before switching to either a different company, different policy. And so it ends up disincentivizing any one company or policy from doing much preventative work. Mm -hmm. Because if, you know, for example, with dementias, if we do work now, we spend a chunk of money right now to see the benefit 10, 20 years down the road, there's no incentive for a private insurance company to do that unless that person is going to be on their policies 10 or 20 years later because they won't, they'll end up spending the money but won't end up seeing the cost savings that, that yeah. result from that. Whereas I've heard some more hope or some more enthusiasm for adoption of some of those policies into more single payers, uh, things like Medicare or things like the British National Health Service, where those people, you know, the system is incentivized to spend a little bit money now to save a lot more money at a later yeah. point in time, right? So, yeah, I think when you lay it out like that, it makes so much sense, right? Because spending a few thousand dollars now so that somebody doesn't end up spending decades in an institutional care home unable to look after themselves, which costs millions of dollars. Right. That makes perfect sense. But equally, you also have to convince somebody to do a huge outlay now because it still is huge right. if, you, if you cover all the people. Right. And I think that's definitely the problem we're having in the NHS in the UK at the moment. I, I haven't worked in the system for a few years now, but right. you just see that they're still trying to continue cuts as, as we try and save money. But what you really need to do is if you had one burst of investment, right. you'd see that benefit for decades to come. Right. And I guess on the flip side, so we'd say in the same way, the politicians who are in office now will hopefully and probably not be the politicians in office 10, 20, 30 years down the road, right? So yeah. it's one thing to say, hey, folks, we're going to spend a ton of money right now, a big infusion. We're going to raise taxes right now to cover that. And then 10 or 20 years down the road, we'll see all these cost savings and everything else. Again, those politicians are going to get the negative press of saying, well, so-and-so raised taxes or so-and-so cut here, or cut there, did this or did that, and they won't get the, the benefits down the road. So, you know, this goes to the fact that human beings, uh, just as a whole, we have a, a design flaw, if you will, uh, which is kind of extreme short-term thinking, yeah. right? Which is an evolutionary advantage when we're in a place where food is uncertain, survival is uncertain, it doesn't make sense to invest time or energy in something that's a long ways away when if you don't attend to the needs of today, you won't even make it yeah. down the yeah. road, right? So um, it makes sense. But again, this is where we talk a lot about evolutionary mismatches and sort of, if you will, the default programming or the default systems in the human body, which make perfect sense for our evolutionary context. We've changed our environment so much and so much of what we're dealing with these days, we have to go against some of our default programming. And this comes to where we need to change the systems around people. So it's easy to say, don't eat junk food, basically. When our evolutionary systems are hardwired essentially to drive us to eat junk yeah. food, mm -hmm. high calorie, sweet, fatty, 
salty foods, all things that our system is designed for. It's one thing to say, get out there and exercise, when again, our systems are designed to say, do as little work as you possibly can, yeah. right? Yeah. So relying on an individual, and this kind of comes to, you know, this even this functional medicine approach where we're telling people, you need to do something very different from what your family and friends are doing, from what society is doing. Uh, you need to make investments both just in your time and energy, but also in your money to do things that run very much against the grain of what other people are doing. And some people will absolutely step up and do that. And if you're listening, we obviously we encourage you to do that. But fundamentally, we need shifts in society as a whole. And, you know, I was reading an interesting article uh, just yesterday about how Iceland has tackled its drug and substance abuse problems. And they said in the 90s, alcohol abuse and drug abuse was the highest in either the world or in Europe, Definitely in Europe. In Europe yeah. at the time. And now it is basically the lowest in Europe at the time. And it wasn't about simply educating people about the harms of drugs and alcohol. It wasn't chastising and encouraging individuals. It was about changing the whole environment around these kids and so anyway on my soapbox here tommy about that but oh, um well i was gonna say I'm, i find that very interesting because i'm actually half icelandic so okay. i have a, a huge amount of icelandic family uh-huh and you're right it becomes the whole concept there which is very similar to trying to get any kind of change in anybody is not you shouldn't promote the negative part of what they're doing you need to promote like a change around them so that it's just easier it's much easier to do the positive thing right and so in that case it was encouraging families to spend parents to spend time with their children right during weekdays like building these systems so that kids can go and do something else rather than hang out in parks and take drugs or whatever right and and that works much better than like a, a war on drugs or anything right. like that which right. which has never really worked right. as far as i'm aware and I've actually I've had a few worked with a few people where they they come to you and they're like so I make my own meals I do my own stuff my wife doesn't believe in this oh, yep. and it requires yep. such a huge power of will to yes. do that and, yes. and willpower is a finite resource right so for some people they'll spend all their time making sure that they get their own food and it's separate from their family and they do all the stuff that they want to do right but actually there's also now that I think about it you're probably reducing the amount that you're then able to interact with your family you're reducing the stuff that you can do together Correct. which is also so important right. for long-term health right and then i guess one of the the benefits of the way that we've been working with people so now with cognitive decline is often yeah. the person that contacts us is the wife or the husband or the sister mm -hmm. and actually when it's we usually say that nobody cares about your health problem more than you do so you have to really invest in it yes but equally you know, if you have somebody who's investing in it for you, yes. then automatically you have an ally. Right. right? Automatically right. you have somebody who can help make those changes easier. Yes. So I think, you know, it, particularly in that situation, that's going to make things a lot simpler because you've got somebody who's do, doing it with you. Right. And I think any time when you're trying to make any kind of change and improve your health, improve the systems around you, having something to do that with, especially if you can get the family to buy in, right? That's going to make it so much easier. Oh, 100%. I mean, community is, again, human beings, we are communal animals, right? We're not solitary animals like tiger or something like that. I mean, we are, to our core, we're community animals. And Tommy's point exactly, we can see people become very isolated by the yeah. health changes that they're making. And food is the, probably the single biggest thing. We'll also see people, in order 
order to sleep more, which is critically important. Now they're not going out with their spouse or they're not doing things and they're going to bed early. They're not getting to spend bonding time with their spouse or with their kids or with all these things. And it's a factor that needs to be thought of. Uh, These things can't be done in isolation. So one example here, you know, I have a patient ended up having to go on antibiotic gut issues. They ended up having to go on antibiotics over the Christmas holiday. And they said they were able for the first time in a long time, they were able to eat whatever they wanted. They partook in all the Christmas goodies and everything else. And this person said it was such a psychological break for them. It was, I didn't have to micromanage and think about my food every moment. I didn't have to, you know, see these trays and platters and things in front of me and use my willpower to say, no, I can't eat that. It was just like my family was there enjoying it. I could be part of that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that should, that should often be the goal. And, you know, there are so many parts of the diet that that we obsess over how the negative effects that they that they have on us. And yes, right. in terms of somebody has a chronic health problem that they need to get over, at the time it's very important right. to, to look after those things. Right. Um, and for anybody to be healthy in the, in the long term, you probably need to reduce, and as a general pattern, those, those things in your diet. Yeah. But there's a huge history, millions of years essentially of us communally eating with others and and enjoying that with others and i think if you're denying that from yourself essentially indefinitely potential for some real like detrimental effects there so once you have achieved some degree of health it should be good enough so that you are robust such that you can enjoy some of those things and maybe you'll get some benefit there correct correct i haven't actually looked at the stats but someone was telling me the other day that in kids and teens with celiac disease that the rate of suicide is higher and you know we can talk about the physiology and the neurochemical changes and blah 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 but one aspect of that that was being zeroed in on is because they can't eat wheat and they can't eat gluten that it separates them from their peer groups Mm. and everything right so they're the quote-unquote weirdo off to the side of the cafeteria who can't eat all the food that all the other kids are eating. They get social stigma around that. They may get picked on because of that. They become different. And again, speaking to groups and everything, being different historically, evolutionarily, is really isn't a good thing. No, basically, absolutely. You know? I think we've tended to embrace that a little bit more. You know, like the, the geek has become cool recently, which is very useful for me. <laughs> but, and hopefully when, if, if kids manage to get through that bit they'll then find the niche and the people that that will then they can then build a group around for the rest of their lives but particularly during that period of time you know when you're a kid and you're isolated that really has the potential to set you up for for long-term problems oh absolutely and so i think you know when we're talking quote-unquote health it's not just the physical health of your body or what your biomarkers or what your lab tests tell you. It also includes the mental state, the emotional place, the connection. I have seen people, not my target audience per se, I'm again, mostly helping sick people, chronically sick people and those who have not gotten help from other doctors. But we do see some people kind of quote unquote, the biohackers and the people who are the kind of athletes and the people who are really looking not to get well, but to ratchet up things to the nth degree there. And I've seen people who are perfect physical specimens. I mean, their lab work is just perfect. Their body composition is their Adonis-like gods of body composition, (laughs) right? All these things. But when you dig in, 
mentally they're miserable. Yeah. They're, everything is so regimented down to the minute in their protocol and what they eat and what they do and everything. There's no spontaneity. There's no joy. There's no real connection. Their pursuits sort of cut them off from everyone around them. Yeah. And we have to say, like, you've achieved an absolute remarkable feat of sort of physical perfection, if you will, but on some level why and on some level at what cost and is it really worth it yeah absolutely and i think there's two important parts of that and and one is that type of person is usually trying to find a way to have their to be able to perform at a maximum level indefinitely right and there's a problem there because whatever you take whatever you do to achieve that yes in the short term you will feel great you'll smash all the goals you're trying to achieve maybe you'll do really good really well at work whatever it is you're trying to do but there is absolutely no biological free lunch and if we've talked about all the things that the human body needs mm -hmm. and or, or the way we we are evolved or designed to work it is that we will work really hard we'll achieve our goal and then we will relax yes and we will spend time with family we will not move at all so you know the guys who go out and did the hunting they then sit down and maybe for two or three days they just sit around right, right. because they did their right they, they did their their thing they, they expended their energy so you know everything we do that expends any kind of either mental or physical energy requires a time to then rest and recover afterwards right, right. and so whatever whatever you're doing to try and achieve optimal performance all the time now then probably has some some detrimental things that can uh, potentially happen right. in the future. Right. I know for me, there's a book, and I forget the author, but I believe the book is called The Power of Full Engagement. And he talks very much about mentally and physically humans are sprinting animals, which mm -hmm. is just sort of what you said, a burst of hard activity followed by you know a fairly significant downtime, basically. Yeah. And that kind of concept has gone out of favor in, in terms of sort of the machine or computer analogies that people want to run at 199 to 100% all the time, every time, yeah. with absolutely maximizing every second of productivity in uh -huh. their day and everything. Yeah. Um, and it's impossible. It's not how we're built. No, absolutely. And I've kind of, I've had to force that upon myself yes. too. And I think particularly, and it goes back to actually when I was a teenager, as I, you know, I talked earlier about how I had like my own health, what a journey, a mm -hmm, health mm -hmm. journey. But what happened to me is I became obsessed, mm -hmm. you know, and I definitely, I always say that I had orthorexia before it was cool. Like <laughs> just, just back when uh -huh. nobody really heard of it. Yeah. And I, the quality of every little thing that went in my mouth it had to be perfect yeah in perfect in terms of what i thought was perfect at the time Correct. which is not right. the same now right and you know it just had this huge negative effect on me and i like i couldn't so when i was at university and a lot of people who knew me back then particularly when i went to university to start with as an undergraduate i wouldn't go out i wouldn't socialize with a lot of people the same way that they did and you right. can argue whether socializing around alcohol is the best way to do it but that's just the way that's right. the way people did it right. right and i just i didn't do that because i didn't feel like it could that it was part of what I needed to be to be optimally healthy and actually that ended up with me not having nearly as many connections to other people around me as, right. as, I, as I could have done right and so now like part of my what I try and do to be healthy and you know some people think that I'm obsessed about some stuff and I probably am <laughs> um, but you know equally yep. like I will have my unhealthy food occasionally and I will just enjoy it and that's yes. part of my mindfulness around the system is that that's something I'm going to do and I'm going to enjoy it just like right. there will be times when I'll sit watch TV with my fiance and do nothing else and right. I'll enjoy it and right. I think you know people almost need to start building those systems in when they spend so much time obsessing over 
all those things to be optimal. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with you. Look, at the end of the day, what we're saying is balance. Obviously, people can go to either extreme. They can hear this kind of message and use it to justify eating crap all yeah. the time. Because, oh, you know, like I, I want connection with my friends, so I'll just binge drink and eat crap all the time. And right you're going to pay the price to do that. Yeah. On the other extreme, if people haven't heard of it, there's this term orthorexia, which Tommy just said, right, which is it was coined so people have heard of anorexia, bulimia, kind of your classic eating disorders, psychological issues that then lead to unhealthy behaviors around food, mm -hmm. right? And so this term was coined orthorexia, which is the kind of the obsession over the the healthfulness or the harmfulness of, of certain foods, right? And on the one hand, this term is used to sort of uh, bash anyone who, who really cares about the quality of yeah. their food. Yeah. You know, if it's like, oh, you know, I don't eat this or I don't eat that or hey, is this organic or, or how it's like, oh, well, you're just orthorexic, right? Yeah. Which is just a way to sort of discount it. But truly, there are some people who do become orthorexic. And that's the sense where this obsession with food becomes essentially psychologically damaging yeah. to the person, right? And that would be the other extreme. You know, you get people, um, I always joke, so as a naturopathic doctor, you know, one of my nightmares is getting together with a group of my colleagues and then having to choose somewhere to go out and eat, right? Which is just like, well, I can't eat this. One person, I can't eat this. Another person, I can't eat that. And then you're just like, well, crap, let's yeah. just, you know, let's just sit here and drink some water, right? Yeah. So I was yeah. going to say, that, that reminds me of this uh, this conference I went to in the UK. So it's, it's called Health Unplugged. It was the first paleo conference mm -hmm. um, ever to be held in the UK. It was run by a guy called Daryl Edwards, who yes. you might have heard of, yeah, mm -hmm. who does yep. a lot of primal play kind of stuff. Right. And so I, I spoke at that conference and then, and then we went out, the speakers all went out to dinner afterwards. So we went to this burger place. And I generally don't eat a lot of bread or cake or cookies or something. But yeah. if I occasionally have it, that's fine. Yeah. And so we go around the table and everybody orders their burger without a bun. And then the, the, the server comes to me and is like, <laughs> do you want a bun? And I was like, not around these guys. Yeah. I don't. <laughs> right, right. So, you know, it's just kind of it's kind of that pressure that's built into that system of all these people. You have to be perfect in right. front of your peers who right. do this kind of thing. I have to say, you know, I have an inner rebellious nature, so I'd be the guy who <laughs> would specifically order the bun just to get the get the crazy looks from everybody because it's like, again, listen, if you have celiac disease, if you have you know a severe issue with wheat or bread or gluten or whatever, please do what is right and sensible for you. Um, I think most, I'm with Tommy, most of the time, most people, you know, we could cut out those processed grains and everything yeah. and it would just be better for everybody. Yeah. But again, once in a, it's not what you do once in a while that matters. It's what you're doing day in and day out that's going to shape your health. And yeah. so eating a bun, oh my God, if you don't have a serious health problem around it, you know, it's like, just calm down a yeah. little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think hopefully part of this whole, you know, people who are listening to this are probably very interested in health journeys and, and they'll probably realize, hopefully, well, part of a journey is becoming mindful about who you are and what you need to be healthy. And yes. hopefully you'll be able to realize where you are on that continuum. So if you're the person who's listening to this and being like, oh, well, you know, Tim and Tommy said that we could just eat crap sometimes and that's yeah. fine. If you're that kind of person, then maybe you need to tighten things up. Right. Whereas maybe you'll realize that you're the person who's, you know, super strict about everything and, it, and it's holding you back and then maybe you can relax a Thing. Right. Absolutely. I mean, that's the biggest thing. I know you guys deal. So let, let's talk a little bit about what you're doing, what you and Chris are doing.
thing. So you guys have, I don't know if a company is the right word, a sort of practice, a sort of, you can describe it, but it's called Nourish, Balance, Thrive. And you guys had primarily been working with athletes and kind of yeah. other high-end people. And in that population, I find one of the most unwelcome messages is sort of that sprint message of saying, look, you know, this in this athletic world, this sort of culture of grind away and work really hard and push yourself is sort of mandatory yeah. almost, right? But saying, listen... And again, I saw this a lot. CrossFit, lots of pros and cons to it. Sort of, I, it seems like it's waning a little bit. Sort yeah. of, it, it's the height of its popularity was a couple of years ago. But we'd find people, and they're grinding away like five to seven days a week doing yeah. this high intensity exercise, and you're and then wondering why is their body composition deteriorating? Why is their sleep deteriorating? Why is their general health deteriorating? Why is their blood work looking so poor and everything? And it's like, well, maybe I just need to work harder. And it's like, yeah. no, yeah. you need to. <laughs> work less hard, yeah. you know? So this message of sort of rest and recovery mm -hmm. was so critical to them. But so so what are you guys doing with Nourish Balance Thrive then? Yeah, so I was going to say that that's actually one of our most important messages, right? If somebody turns up and they, they send you their, we have like a, a questionnaire and you ask about the, their training program and their diet and all that stuff. And I often see um, it's something like it comes through and this guy is training 20 hours a week and he's probably an executive somewhere so that he can afford all the fancy Ironman equipment, which is what they tend to do, like right. long-distance triathlons. Right. And then he's going and racing you know, an Ironman in a different country maybe once a month. And like, not only is that training volume huge, is that racing volume huge, then you're just like, I look at that, I'm like, all you're going to get is divorced yeah. and you're yeah. not going to see your children right. anymore. Right. But so one of the most important messages we have is basically allowing people to step back, take the foot off the pedal and say, this is what is actually going to make you go faster. And, you right. know, we've worked with people who've won world championships, you know, people who've competed at the Olympics. And actually, a lot of the time, it's actually eat more carbs is mm -hmm. probably I say that more than anything. <laughs> and also actually take some time to you know, find ways to deal with stress, find ways to improve your sleep. Um, usually we, we tidy up the diet, do some kind of elimination diet. And the, the reason why this sort of came together initially is because Chris, who is he's a professional level mountain biker. He doesn't get paid to mountain bike, but he races against professionals at that level. Yeah. And he had really poor health, you yeah. know, and he couldn't sleep. He had terrible sexual function. He, I, he doesn't mind me talking about that because he <laughs> talks about it all the time. Uh -huh. I, I obviously wasn't there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so he basically completely couldn't get an answer through the traditional medical system because yeah. they were like, well, here, have some Viagra. And if you think you have celiac disease, eat gluten for the for two weeks and then we'll do a, an endoscopy and right. see. And he was like, right. no, thanks. Thanks yeah. very much. Yeah. Um, and so he did, you know, autoimmune paleo diet and then sort of started to look at all this other stuff, did some some training courses and then basically built this practice with his wife and another medical doctor, uh, Jamie, who's the CEO of, of Nourish Balance Thrive. And she's also an elite level mountain biker. Mm. And so the idea was just to basically fix athletes who've broken themselves often training and eating the way that they're told to, right? right? Just right. huge amounts of volume and then loads of carbs afterwards, right. um, particularly refined, which causes a lot of problems. And yeah. so then we started out just fixing those people, which, and we still do that and have had more and more people at all levels, right? Yeah. You know, national, international, all the way down to just weekend warriors and people who want to perform better. Right. And then recently we've expanded and, and we're doing sort of telemedicine for the for these Bredesen protocols for, for cognitive decline. And that's just started in, in the last couple of weeks, actually. And what's really interesting, actually, is when I, I'm not talking to the clients most of the time, although I will do more of that once I'm working full time with them. Right. But because I'm sort of have the higher level overview, if you, if you look at what you need to do with somebody who has cognitive decline, 
doing versus somebody who wants to optimally perform at whatever it is they do. And we, we work with a lot of those people too because they're very similar to athletes. Sure. All athletes, the basic stuff that you need to function as a human being is always the same, right? right? That doesn't right. change. So it, it's usually a, a case of just taking care of those basics. And then, yeah, we'll do some of the testing, very similar to the testing that you do, right. and tweak some of that stuff. But actually, we don't have the same experience of dealing with really complex cases that you do, yeah. say. And yeah. we've worked together on some of our clients. So we've, yep. you've, you've consulted with us on that, which has been hugely helpful. Great. You know, for 99% of people, just the same stuff makes people healthy. Right. Yeah, Tommy and I, were, were we were geeking out before we kind of started the recording here, and we were saying, look, to the point at the beginning of the show, you need to know, as a practitioner, you need to have a grounding in, in the biochemistry and the physiology and these aspects. But at the end of the day, it's funny, you go deep, deep down these pathways, and you come swinging back out, and you go like, well, it's the end of the day the the actual the treatment or the, or the recommendations are the same yeah basically uh, in that way and so to tommy's point the analogy that i use is look if you have a plant you can look at the leaves you can look at the stalk you can look at all and you can diagnose all these different diseases and issues that are going on with the plant and those may need specific treatments based on what's going on but also, at the end of the day, a plant always needs good soil, water, and sunlight. And yeah. if it, you can be doing all these fancy, high-tech, super in-depth, most cutting-edge treatments, and if you forget to water the plant, like, <laughs> you know, it's not going to work, yeah, basically, yeah, right? And that's the same way with human beings, that there are basics. Um, and I often find uh, that some of the people who are the most educated, the most hard-driven, are digging down into that minutia, and they're looking to say, well, should I have 23% of this or 24% of this? And you're saying, like, hang on, let's back up for a second to some of our earlier points. What's your connection like with your family? How are you doing with your spouse? Like, what's the quality of your sleep like? How do you manage your stress? And, and a lot of times these people can be very resistant. It's like, no, no, I need to know if I need 4.5 milligrams or 4.6 milligrams <laughs> of something. And it can be hard sometimes to say, yes, yes, I those pieces are there, but we also need to make sure what we call them the foundations of health in our practice, whatever you want to call them, you know, fundamentals yeah. or, or basics or, or, or whatever. But those are the pieces that need to be in place. And then, yes, you may need to go on to do other corrections and other issues that are going on for people. But if it's something that people can take away, you may think you're doing all those kind of fundamentals and foundations correctly, and you might be. But a lot of times, I guess it's human nature, we tend to fixate on one or two of those factors. And so someone may be exceedingly good on their diet, but then really poor at stress management. Yeah. Or they may be getting enough sleep, but they're not really doing good exercise, basically. Yeah. And this is where having someone from the outside to come in, do a survey and look and say, those things that you don't like to do or those areas that you don't consider very important, those might be really critical for you. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's the, um, I always say that even coaches have coaches. Yeah. So if you look at the, the athletes say, often the coaches are also elite level athletes in their own right right but they don't coach themselves they have somebody to coach them right correct so you always you know almost always and some people can navigate this by themselves and that's great but you almost if things just aren't going right and you know they're not then it's really helpful to have a coach come in and say okay so we can we can stop worrying about the diet right and then let's maybe try and find some find some techniques to try and improve all this other stuff and i think that if, if anybody is ever struggling at any point then finding a good coach can really really help do that absolutely absolutely 
absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about telemedicine. They're obviously a big subject, but you know, one of the most common complaints that we get in my practice is we get contacted by people all over the, really all over the world, basically. Yeah. And, and the most common, you know, concern or complaint or, or ask is, well, you know, who near me does the kind of work that you guys do? Yeah. And the sad reality is a lot of times the answer is no No one around you does yeah. the work we want to do. Um, I'm not sure if you've seen, there's an organization called the Functional Forum. They're here in the States and their mission is sort of to popularize functional medicine and bring it out there. And they've just, or, or they're just about to kind of launch a branch in the UK. And, okay, and their statement is, you know, the UK in this regard is at least 10 years behind the States as far as the, the functional medicine approach. Yeah, you know? absolutely. I got that when I was, was out, and I was in Norway, but I, I had an online presence to some degree and people would email me and like, how do I access this functional medicine stuff in the UK? And, you know, three or four years ago, I had to say, well, do you know what? I'm actually, I actually don't know. Yeah. And that's changing now. Yeah. I'm, I'm on a board of advisors for a company that's, that's starting that up with some great people who know functional medicine in the UK. And, and so it's coming, but right. I mean, 10 right. years is probably about right. Right. And so for a lot of people, they're reading blogs, they're listening to podcasts like this, they're watching videos, maybe they're doing some online trainings or courses or things like that. And they're trying to reach out to practitioners. I mean, the common story I hear, you know, every single day is so, I recognize the importance of, of these different things, and so then I take it to my conventional MD, my primary care doctor, my family doctor, whatever, and I say, hey, could we do these tests, or I'd like to do this treatment, or I'm thinking of taking this, or I am taking this or that, you know, can you help me? And that, sadly, all too often the answer is, not only no, can I not help you? No, I'm not going to do that. You need to stop doing that. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a complete waste of time, money. There, again, to our earlier point, there's no science behind any yeah, of this uh -huh. stuff, right? When the reality is uh, there's plenty of science uh, that many docs, again, not, not trying to throw stones or cast blame, they just haven't had the time yeah, or the absolutely. inclination to, to look into this. You and know? I always, whenever people like bash MDs, I, yeah. I always like, <laughs> well, I've done that. I know yeah. how it works. And yeah. it's not that they don't care. Yes. Like they genuinely think they're doing the best and, and they are with the knowledge that they have. Yes. And they are not in a system that allows them to learn new stuff such that they can integrate it yes. right so yes. they're very good at what they do but then when you ask them to do something that, that they don't know anything about then you know, particularly if it's like well why don't you know this that you're never going to get a, a useful conversation right right so right. It, it, it's about under, like well, both sides should understand where the other person is coming from and i always think that you know if you want to bring some stuff bring some information start a discussion it needs to be very open and friendly yes. and then you'll find that a lot of doctors are interested because they do want to help people right. but as soon as you know what often happens is they're like oh well my physician uh, md whatever is yeah. useless because he doesn't know this and then you're never going to get anything right. useful out of them so it's it's definitely requires a certain approach to try and get the best out of that relationship because it will be useful at some point right right to our point earlier unfortunately this falls on the individual patients to try and broach and build relationships yeah. and not that the system as a whole supports this kind of approach yeah. And, yeah. and and again hopefully that's changing i actually have some optimism that it's changing yeah. as well interesting funny story so i was talking to an integrated psychologist uh, the other day and he was saying he uses um, kind of an orthomolecular biochemical okay. approach okay. for uh, treating things like anxiety depression a lot of the these issues beyond just sort of 
talk therapies and things like that. And he was saying, you know, whenever a patient would come to him, he used to write a letter or an email or whatever it is, you know, but he would write a correspondence to their primary care physician saying, hello, you know, this person's seeing me. This is the approach that I'm taking. Just wanted to reach out to you and let you know. And he was saying he found that in about seven of 10 cases, the PCP would turn around and and basically tell the patient, don't go see the psychologist. They're doing like, I don't know what they're doing. They're doing crazy stuff. Like go pick another psychologist who's doing what I expect them to be doing. So he said he's recently sort of uh, changed his protocol where now he's waiting till to get some results for those person Mm -hmm. before introducing himself. So in other words, it's like, hey, Tommy, I've been seeing uh, Jane Doe. We've been doing this approach and her anxiety is 70% better than when she came in. I just wanted to let you know. If you have any questions, let me know. And he's been finding that approach has, has shifted things a lot because now it's the doc goes, oh, well, wow, that, that, that's, there's a significant change yeah. and sort of at worst, the docs are saying, well, like, I don't know what this is, but if it's working for you, yeah. Yeah, just yeah. keep doing exactly. it basically, yeah. right? So, it, you know, there's a lot of pieces here. Telemedicine, right? So a lot of people, the internet has turned a lot of people on to these concepts and they're reaching out and a lot of times not getting the support, not getting the guidance, not getting the help that they need from the practitioners who are around them. And so having to reach out. And so this idea of telemedicine, so doing medicine at a distance, whether it's, uh, you know, phone calls, uh, whether it's, you know, online video services, you know, is sort of growing in popularity as people are reaching out from all over the place to try try and get some help. Um, And we were talking about, you know, there are some legal issues around it, Um, certainly for those of us with medical degrees and licenses. um, Those laws are really behind the times, basically. Um, And for a lot of people, there is real legitimate concern that you're doing, you're practicing medicine without a license. So, for example, I'm a licensed doctor in the state of Washington, so I can do all the rights and privileges and everything of being a licensed uh, healthcare provider in Washington, unless I hold a license in all 50 states um, and then in even, you know, other countries and other places, basically, technically, depending on what we're doing, it can really hamstring someone's ability to practice. So do you want to, you want to talk a little bit about kind of what you guys are doing and te- yeah. the, the idea of telemedicine and everything? Yeah, I think that is, at the moment, it, it's it's really important in, in all of the scenarios that I've sort of been a part of. So in the UK, just because there aren't that many people doing that kind of stuff. And yeah. then in, in the US, because it's so vast. Yes. And, you know, there are a lot large areas where there just aren't those pockets of the kind of practitioners. So maybe up in Seattle, you know, you're you're kind of spoiled for choice for yes. people who know what they're doing. Yes. Right? You know, there's, there's, a, there's a great community of functional medicine practitioners around here, but that's not the case everywhere. Yes. And the way, and it's difficult for me because anybody who comes to work with me, you know, I am never taking over as their medical care provider. Yes. You know, yes. I, if somebody, I can provide advice and coaching, so I'm health coaching at most. Right. Right. And I can be a consultant in that respect. And it even becomes, the, you know, if the doctor then wants to speak to me, you know, that that is possible, but I will never pretend that I'm being somebody's taking over as somebody's primary care provider. Right. And some, you know, some people will manage to do some telemedicine whilst also taking on that role. And that's right. fine, but that's, right. that, that isn't what we do. But, but equally we find that most of what needs to be achieved doesn't require that. Mm-hmm. And most of what you need to do to help somebody and you can, people can usually get access to their own tests without physician. Um, you know, there's a lot of companies that are helping people do that. 
So then what you just need is somebody to help you interpret that and then right. make the changes. And right. then sometimes you need to go and speak to your doctor. And and so far, those those conversations have been largely productive. You just need to sort of set them up in the right way. Right. So generally, we say that we're, because we're generally working with athletes, so yep. we're coaching, health coaching, and that gets us most of the way. And in reality, like I said, most of the stuff that it takes to help somebody go faster, feel better, doesn't require prescriptions or anything like that. So you can get most of the job done without active medical care, if you want to call it that. Right. How do you see that changing with working more with Alzheimer's and dementia and those yeah. kind of issues? So I think that it could does potentially make it a little bit trickier, but you're going to have most of those people, at least the ones we've interacted with so far, have, like I said, some, some family and support networks around them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what I've noticed particularly that's beneficial in the US compared to, say, in the UK is that people are a lot more open to less traditional methods of, of healthcare and right. and where we can really support the approach is that you know Dale Bredesen has published and is publishing a huge amount of data in this mm-hmm. area and mm-hmm. I can say look this protocol is published here are documented cases of reversal of cognitive decline using these approaches so we are just going based off the published literature and mm-hmm. and mo- you know, not all but most neurologists, primary care practitioners, I think will find that interesting, particularly as the data increases. And that's one thing that we're kind of hoping Dr. Bredesen will be very you know, good at is integrating the data from all the pa- all the practitioners doing this kind of stuff and then, you know, really get that out there. And that's going to that's going to really legitimize it. Yeah. Um, and, and there's one that's one area that I kind of feel that the, the functional or alternative medical world is what it isn't very good at is like they've got all this stuff which is making people better yes. and nobody knows about it and right. what I mean knows about it is like it's not in the formal published literature right. and being somebody who's come from a very traditional background I therefore know why somebody will come in and say well this is quackery because there's no evidence for it right. so what and part of what I would like to do in the future is help practitioners publish that data because as soon as it gets out there and you can prove that this works right. then it's going to become much more accepted and more people will have access to it right absolutely 100% agree again the functional forum uh, you can check them out on YouTube if you just go to YouTube and you type in functional forum I believe their their website uh, is functionalforum.com but they talk a lot about the change from functional medicine sort of again many different terms functional alternative integrative natural like whatever you want to yeah, call it yeah, basically yeah. right but the change from functional medicine 1.0 to functional medicine 2.0 and what they say and I agree with this is you know functional medicine 1.0 was essentially lone practitioners sort of just out on their own they came to it because of kind of conversion experiences whether in their own health or in patients health or whatever it is and they're sort of this self-contained little island working alone if you will, and helping people get better. And now the switch to functional medicine 2.0 is sort of taking all those lone practitioners and networking and integrating them together into communities. Um, To your point, exactly. What is the way that we can get these protocols sort of uh, get the the scientific backing behind them to get the broader conventional medical community to accept that there's benefits so not just where they're going like well i guess this person seems better so great keep you know diet exercise like uh, supplementation herbs like hey whatever you're better so whatever just keep doing Uh it right to actually these approaches have merit and and what we'd like at the very least is if the primary doctors, the family care doctors, even if they say, like, I don't know anything about that, but they can say, clearly, there's some evidence for it and go find a different practitioner, yeah. essentially, to yeah. go go get those pieces done. Yeah, absolutely. And I think part of that also will, will be at the other end, which is that I think there are 
some things or a lot of things that some alternative medical practitioners do that either doesn't work or shouldn't be done right and and hopefully as those worlds you know come together and learn more about each other then some of that stuff will will fall out absolutely you know, because, I, because I, I think that will both that will improve the, the health and safety of the patients as well so it's not just that the alternative stuff needs to come into the traditional medical world it's that the alternative some of the alternative stuff just needs to go away absolutely 100 percent behind that the danger so you've seen you know anybody out there on the internet has seen sort of the explosion of what's called n equals one which is basically experimenting on yourself finding what works for you yeah. and then pushing that out there and I'm on one level 100% behind that approach each of us needs to find what works best for us the downside to that is just sort of a lot of stuff that it seems like it helps or people are not sure if it helps but it just sort of gets perpetuated yeah. out there yeah. one of the complaints of the conventional system is look by sort of looking back into traditional medicine we're pulling a lot of superstitions forward uh -huh. and everything and there is truth to that yeah. on the one hand if a system of medicine or a civilization has been using therapies for a long time, there probably is good evidence that, that, that those actually are helpful therapies, yeah. right? Yeah. On the other hand, it is possible that it's just sort of superstition that's carried forward. Yeah. And so there is a need on every side not to blindly accept uh, things just because it's the way it was done or the way yeah. it is done, yeah. right? Uh, one famous uh, one a number of years ago was in knee surgeries where everyone was doing knee surgeries and people seemed to get better until that dogma got questioned. Then they found out actually really it was just a placebo effect yeah. and, and nothing, against, uh, nothing whatsoever against the placebo effect, but not an objectively useful therapy. And yeah. so that needs to fall out. It reminds me of Chris and I have a, a good friend, a guy who we've worked with and will actually hopefully come and work with us in the practice as well because he's doing some functional medicine training currently uh -huh. as, a, as like a, a, a shift in careers. Yeah. And it reminds me of, I found out that he just lost some marks on a midterm because he didn't recommend, to a, a fictional patient, he didn't recommend a certain therapy that he doesn't believe in right. because there's no evidence to, to support it. Right. And so having that kind of dogmatic approach to these people you need to recommend this you know and, and having that as part of the training courses really sets us up for, for danger in the future particularly yes. if you want to get some of that stuff legitimized so yes so i think at, hopefully all of that will start to start to balance out as people try and figure out what does work what really is evidence-based um, and that includes taking some of the stuff that we do into the real world and then also maybe reanalyzing some of the stuff that sort of the functional world does that maybe shouldn't they shouldn't do obviously all sides my goal is you know every couple of years what i'd like to do is be able to look back on what i was doing a couple of years ago and go like oh man i can't believe i was doing that right <laughs> yeah. uh, better data comes out and, and when we speak about data again it's not it for People who are listening, I'm sure you guys get this, but it, it's not just about you know double-blind, placebo-controlled studies. It's also about clinical experience. Yeah, it's yeah. about all of these pieces, right? And at the end of the day, you know, my belief is the only dogma we should have should be what gets results for people, yeah, yeah, right? And if people are getting better, that's what matters. At the same time, we need to be driving towards, you know, finding the most effective therapies that do get people better. And again, this is the strength of from the integrative or natural alternative, again, whatever word you want to use, of networking people together. It's how can best practices emerge, yeah. right? And so circling back to our bigger conversation before, because a lot of functional providers were sort of islands to themselves and sort of grew up, if you will, in a hostile environment. They may have been 
overtly being attacked uh, by by the conventional system, you know, a few podcasts ago, I had a chiropractor on and he talked about very how it was, you know, cut and dry. The American Medical Association was absolutely targeting and trying to drive out and delegitimize all the chiropractors. Oh, wow. And they actually lost a major lawsuit where it went against them because yeah. the evidence was so ironclad, you know. So we had in years gone by and a little bit today, sort of overt campaign to drive sort of some of these approaches out of business, out of practice, to just sort of hostile environments and things. You know, I even know years ago when I would call up an MD to try to talk to them and they would find out my credentials as a naturopathic doctor, some of them would straight up refuse to talk to me, hang up the phone on me and everything else, you know, and that is changing thankfully yeah. now. And so uh, they came from this hostile environment and they also, some of these people, again, uh, nothing against them, but they came up as sort of these promoters like we were talking about before, marketing themselves, getting themselves out there, building a name for themselves, trying to earn a living. We have almost on some level this old culture of sort of secrecy. Well, I have my own personal, private, yeah. super special protocols. You almost sign non-disclosure agreements yeah. when you uh-huh. go in and work with them and everything. And on one hand, I can kind of see that, but it impedes progress. Absolutely. You know, we need to be sharing best practices among each other and we need to have the humility to say, okay, right, I did do this, but you know, the bulk of evidence, again, whether it's clinical, whether it's scientific studies and everything, points to the fact that this was either not the best approach or, or honestly, it was a bad approach yeah. to take. Yeah. And now I've upgraded my skills and my knowledge. And so to anyone who's sort of one of these integrative practitioners, we often turn a harshly critical eye to MDs in the conventional system, and they deserve it in many aspects, but we also sort of need to turn that own criticalness back yeah. on ourselves as well yeah. and say, you know, a lot of the approaches um, just are incorrect. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Tommy. Well, I think we're kind of coming down to the end of this session. It's been great sitting and chatting with you. I think we'll probably have a lot more opportunities to sit and chat. Is there something I haven't asked you that you want to share? No, I don't think so. I would just say that if anybody is, so say, particularly an athlete or a high performer who or wants to be a high performer that thinks they need some help with that, then that's obviously something that we've been doing a lot of. So they can come and visit us at Nourish, Balance, Thrive. Uh, we're doing more work with cognitive decline, like I said. Yeah. So uh, probably I should, like I, I did at the beginning, like really thank the team that I work with, which basically yeah. they allow me to, to put this stuff into practice. And yeah. without them, like it's just knowledge that doesn't get used. So right. like kind of thanks to them who are a brilliant team. And, you know, and, and if anybody does come and work with us, you, you'll realize that too. They're all fantastic. Absolutely. It's a team, you know, ego aside, the best results come from a team-based approach. Yeah. Right. Just another red flag out there. You know, if your healthcare provider, no matter what the initials after their name are or aren't, if they're telling you they're the only person that can do it, or that, again, super special proprietary Uh protocols are the only way to kind of get success, or everyone else out there is idiots, or there's no space or room for collaboration or work, to me, that's a big red flag. Definitely. Right. No one, no one knows everything. No one has all of the answers it is impossible yeah basically right <laughs> we each do the best that we can clearly there are better just like in any profession there are better and worse healthcare providers yeah. there are more skilled more knowledgeable and less skilled less knowledgeable providers out there and of course seek out the most knowledgeable the most skilled providers that you can but again know that no one knows everything yeah that's why we need you guys as patients to work in collaboration with us absolutely you know and i would just 
that take that point and say that a lot of the people just because of the, the the group that we work with are people who are very interested in doing the research going and reading stuff and often you know they'll bring stuff to us and say read about this what, what do you think about this what about this study and like we're learning stuff all the time from our patients absolutely it, like, so often it's it's less of a I'm imparting knowledge to somebody else and it's more like a meeting of minds and I'll just like give some thoughts and ideas and you know they can run with that and I think you know doing that it is going to help everybody learn much more and then also get better faster. Absolutely. Well, we're really big on partnerships. Like we talk about it, it has to be a partnership. Yeah. You know, there needs to be respect that flows both ways. And we see where, where that goes wrong. Sometimes these highly educated patients have no respect for the medical providers. And it's sort uh -huh. of like, you know, we occasionally have people who treat me, who want to treat me like a prescription pad yeah. in order to get the therapies, uh, the tests, the treatments, the various things they need. They come in and basically say, this is my problem. Yeah. This is the treatment I want. Give it to me, yeah. basically. And yeah. it's like, I'm sorry, no, we want a partnership. On the other hand, you know, a lot of people come in and they talk about how they're essentially their doctor does that to them. It's yeah. like, stop talking, person. <laughs> this is what's going on. This is what you need to do. Just shut up and do it, basically, yeah. Yeah, right? Yeah. And it's like, no, that doesn't work either. We need a collaborative partnership where, where there's respect for the provider all the work, all the knowledge that we bring to the table, and there's respect for the person who's sitting in front of us. You live inside the body that yeah, you've got. Absolutely. Your insights, your opinions, your self-knowledge and research all are absolutely valid too. So yeah. so both sides need to come to the table. Yeah. All right, so where can folks, if, if they want to look you up, where they want to find you, where can they find you? Yeah, so nourishbalancethrive.com is, is the best place to go. Uh, I do have a Facebook page and a Twitter and blog, and they're all Dr. Ragnar. Ragnar's my middle name, Icelandic name. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, there's, yeah. your, uh, there's the yeah. Icelandic that comes in, for and sure. So, so people can find that. I haven't done that much on that stuff recently just because I've been working more and more through Nourish Balance Thrive. So yeah. that's probably the best place to find me. And so I've been blogging, doing some blogs there. And I do a lot of podcasts with Chris as well. And often they're quite technical. Uh, right. So if people are interested in that stuff, then then they can go they can go there. But so that's the best place. Nice. Right. nice. So next week, are, are you flying back to Oslo? Yeah. So I fly. I fly on Tuesday morning. I arrive Wednesday morning, you know, having taken the yeah. red eye across. Right. And, then, and then all of Thursday is my defense day. So. Nice. Nice. And then, be, then back to Seattle again? And then back to Seattle and back to work and for, yeah, continue with the research for a few months and then transition and, and go into Nourish Balance Thrive full time. Nice. Nice. Awesome. Well, we will definitely, uh, if he's up for it, we'll definitely have Tommy back. Um, um, and definitely Chris's podcast over there at Nourish Balance Thrive is great. He, covered, he interviewed a lot of experts, has a lot of great information. It does tend to be at a sort of more in-depth complex and technical level so don't feel if you're listening and that kind of seems above your head don't there's nothing wrong with you yeah. and don't feel that you have to go learn that but if that's something that resonates with where you are i do recommend go over check out give give a couple episodes a listen i'll just say there, there's a great doctor named uh, dr gersmar has been on a, a couple of uh, podcasts with chris now Actually, i just it's, listened to one of those it was great oh i know fantastic yeah. yeah yeah and a lot of other good pieces so you can check them out definitely tommy is a wealth of knowledge. I look forward to having him, you know, as a resource so we can bounce things back and forth uh, yeah, amongst each other. And, um, you know, again, community, 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 both in your own personal lives. So again, some takeaways, balance in your life, tending to your, the physical needs of your body and the therapies for your lab tests or your dysfunctions is very important. Yeah. Doing it at the extent of destroying your mental, emotional, and social life 
is also a huge factor that, that needs to be Absolutely. brought into play. Yeah. So, you know, for a lot of people, we'd say, you know, look, getting to 80% physical health while respecting the mental, emotional, and social aspects of your life is better than getting to 99% physical health while destroying, essentially, those other aspects of your life. Yeah, and that will you know? give you robustness going into the future. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. All right, folks, we'll wrap up again. If you have any questions, comments, please feel welcome to leave it for us, and uh, we'll, we'll arrange to get Tommy back on the podcast sometime in the not-too-distant future. All right, Tommy, thanks for joining us. Thank you. All right, folks, that wraps up another episode of the Aspire Natural Health podcast. If you enjoyed it, we hope you've subscribed to us over at iTunes. You can also check us out at our website, www.aspirenaturalhealth.com. That's Aspire as in A-S-P-I-R-E, naturalhealth.com. You can check us out on Facebook at facebook.com slash aspirenaturalhealth or check out our library of videos over at YouTube. Just go over to YouTube and punch in Aspire Natural Health. You'll find us there. So a couple great more ways you can check out our free educational materials. At Aspire Natural Health, we are experts at treating gut dysfunctions, autoimmune diseases, and other hard-to-treat cases. If you that's you or someone you know, you can always contact us and schedule a free 15-minute consult with myself and find out if we are the right fit and we can help you out with your issues. So simply check us out, check out our website. Again, that's www.aspirenaturalhealth.com or give us a call at 425-202. 7849. You can set up that free 15 minute consult. All right, folks, until we meet again, take care.